Princeton University, and so we're glad to be able to help the church by filling in for Jeremiah as he's busy in the Christmas season and working on his classes, and we'll be continuing together in 1 Corinthians this morning. Uh, I'm glad to be able to encourage you this morning. Uh, we've been streaming at home, as a handful of you might have known, we have our newborn son with us finally. Um, we finally thought we were getting somewhere with sleep, as Thursday night he would sleep for four hours uh, throughout the night, but last night apparently that was just uh, wishful thinking, because we were down to about an hour of sleep before he'd be up and crying again, so <clears throat> we're looking forward to being back with you, though. Uh, last week, Jeremiah talked about handling conflict with other Christians. I love what he said about uh, the moment we handle conflict unbiblically, we've already lost. Uh, when we take someone to court unjustly, or when we light someone up in the Facebook comment section, it doesn't matter if the court rules in your favor or if the Facebook world agrees with you, if you handle it unbiblically, you've already lost. Our struggle with conflict is really an unforgiveness issue because we think that this person's not willing to receive our forgiveness or our grace. It's all self-justification. And as we've talked about that this week, now we're launching into uh, chapter 6, verses 12 through 22 with the topic of sexual immorality. And what's interesting, and we'll get to this later on, but actually quite a bit of unforgiveness can come or can be rooted for our sexual sins. But I'd like to take a second to consider that term sexual immorality together. Because what it means is acts of sex outside of God's original plan and design for us. And they could be thoughts of the mind, they could be clicks or sites you visit on your phone. Um, or they could be acts of the body with another person. But when these passages come up about sexual immorality, we tend to think about uh, the crazy Friday night people, <clears throat> the young hookup culture, one night stands, people having sexual uh, relations with each other and they don't even know each other, or it's just a casual relationship. And all the examples are, all of these are examples of sexual immorality. But what about for our audience today. Not the young people that I work with regularly on the college campus. What about for the woman in, established in her career? Or the father of two? Or for the retired man or woman? What does sexual immorality look like for the good, hardworking, moral church members of Brown Corners Church? Because sexual immorality tends to be more than what we think of when it comes to wild prodigals on the weekends. I'd like to offer a different look at this concept. Let's think about it in a phrase, uh, sexuality without God. Because it isn't just about one night stands. He's concerned with how we seek attention from other people. With how we dress, with how we interact with others what we view online, in any other way we try to draw a lustful eye from someone or we try to sneak a lustful look at somebody else. Now to give credit where credit is due, much of this morning's influence on sexual immorality comes from a book called Surfing for God by Michael Cusick. And we'll consider his thoughts more after we get familiar with our text. But uh, 1 Corinthians 6, 12-22. 
I have the right to do anything you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. You say, food for the stomach and stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Now, after reading, what is this passage saying that our bodies are actually designed for? They're designed to honor God. I like how Romans 12 puts it. Uh, to offer our bodies is a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. That is what we're designed for. We don't negate sexual immorality for sexual fulfillment later on, as if the whole point of not having sexual immorality or sexuality without God is a don't spoil your dinner with candy or sweets. We abstain from sexuality apart from God because it is our form of worship, not because we're just holding out for guilt-free sex. A friend of mine who's a, pastor in church, who's a pastor of a church in Mount Pleasant tells couples in pre-marriage counseling that Satan will do anything to try and get you in bed with someone that you're not married to, and he'll do anything to keep you from getting in bed with the person that you're married to. Sexual wholeness is an honoring act to God our Father. We have to keep our priorities aligned rightly. The point of keeping God at the center of our sexuality is because it pleases God. Notice with me also that the text says, flee from sexual immorality. And what's interesting about this flee phrasing is it's one of the only sins that we're explicitly given flee as a command to when it comes to sin. Like, let's consider anger. Because with anger, anger is actually okay, but the Bible says don't sin in your anger. Or drunkenness. Drinking is okay, but when you're drinking, don't get drunk. It's okay to make a great deal or have a successful year with your crops, but in your prosperity, don't become greedy or prideful. But with sexual temptation, we don't get a, it's okay to look but not touch. Or a, it's okay to have the fantasy, don't act on it. No, we're called to flee. So, let's be a church that flees together. But only if it was so simple as just hiding our heads in the sand like an ostrich, or abstinence, or running from it. Because you see, a few weeks ago, Jeremiah also spoke on 1 Corinthians 5. And this text says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, in that case, you would have to leave this world. See, we need to flee, but 
you would have to leave this world to totally rid yourself from any temptation. So has God made the standards too high for us? Has he given us an impossible task? See, when it comes to exploring our sexuality without God, there's a much deeper layer than we often give ourselves credit to. We tend to think of our soul and our bodily urges as somehow apart from each other. But that's not true. The sweetness of an apple on your taste buds was never a problem. The problem was when we became gluttons for more apples. Let's think more about eating. We, we were designed to eat. Adam and Eve ate in the garden. But our sin nature morphed eating into something else. We started doing things like comfort eating. Maybe we're nervous at work or we've had a long day uh, or there's tension at home. So we take time and we eat when we don't need to eat. Eating's also become a symbol of a good time. We'll go to the football party or to the pizza buffet and eat until we're to the point of being uncomfortable and in a food coma. We've even turned eating into a shameful thing. We've created these things called salads as a way to punish eating. Sure, we're still eating, but if it's a salad, what's the point? Rather than having a little self-control, we've stripped the glory of eating to feel superior because we don't eat those carbs or those fats or those meats anymore. If eating could transform to a far more powerful thing in our life, then we'd be crazy not to think that we've manipulated sex in the same ways as well. I'm going to make a claim that's going to cross as a little, come across as a little anticlimactic to a message on sexual immorality. But that's that uh, when it comes to sexual morality, it's not ultimately an issue about sex. Our text gives us a hint at this reference to the temple brothel and prostitute here. Uh, Were there sexual urges for the Corinthians? Yes, absolutely. They're just as much human as us. But it's not just about sex. There are many promises that they were sold for practicing their sexuality without God. See, in ancient Greece, sacred prostitution was known especially in the city of Corinth. The temple of Aphrodite employed significant number of female servants for the people to come and participate with. Partaking with these sacred prostitutes was not just a way to satisfy a carnal desire they might have, it was also a way of getting the gods to be in your favor. For instance, one citizen of Corinth who was an acclaimed runner and winner at the Olympic Games dedicated 100 young girls to the temple as a sign of thanksgiving for his abilities. Temple prostitution was a way to receive prosperity in your life. Things would go better for you if you did was the promise that they'd receive. Yes, you could satisfy that itch, but imagine having the gods on your side for your beauty, for your status in the community, for protection over your belongings. For some Corinthians, uh, they were using this temple prostitution as a way of fire insurance in case God wasn't able to help them in the area that they needed help in. You could hear their rationale being, yes, I know God can cover my sins, but he can't cover another drought on my farm. Or yes, I know Jesus loves me, but how else am I going to find a spouse? 
I'm absolutely convinced we operate with the same mindset as the Corinthians. We gather for worship on our Sundays, we take our bread and juice, we sing along with the songs, but then when we go back to work on Monday and the happy smiles and the lyrics fade away, who's really going to protect me? Who's really going to make me feel loved? There's a quote that I think perfectly hits the mark of our condition. It comes from a writer and philosopher named G.K. Chesterton. And the quote is this, Every man who knocks on the door of a brothel is looking for God. Every knock is from a questioner asking, is this where I can find life? Is this where I can finally find what I'm missing? Is this where I can find love? Now, there's another quote. It's a little crass, uh, so forgive me for it, but I believe it also puts it very perfectly. And this comes from uh, a TV character named Michael Scott from NBC's The Office. And it's, it's not the hormones, okay? It's the loneliness. As I mentioned before, Cusick's book, Suffering for God, is by far my favorite book when it comes to fleeing sexuality without God. The book's focus is definitely on pornography, but I believe it's completely applicable to all forms of sexual immorality because it takes many forms. Sexuality can take the form of pornography or it could take the form of seeking that attention from that other person in church. We may never initiate a touch with someone, but we want to draw as many eyes as we can or we want to be the most desirable person in the room. We don't know why, but the idea that we're taking up residence in their imagination is like a drug for us. Knowing their thoughts could be, why doesn't my spouse look like that person? Act like that person. Encourage me like that. Laugh with me like that. It's addicting for us. In chapter 2 of this book, Surfing for God, Cusick has six listed broken promises that pornography offers. But like I said, these are the very same promises, broken promises, that we find with all sexual sin. I'd love to walk through each of these with you this morning. So the first one, sexuality without God promises validation of our manhood or womanhood without requiring strength. Now, strength is interesting in sport. It can be measured in two ways. It can be measured in how much you can lift something, a few repetitions, or it can be measured in how uh, many times you can lift that thing without taking a break. Like, can you lift 300 pounds five times, or can you lift 200 pounds 20 times? <clears throat> uh, my freshman year in college, I joined a lifting group there, and there were three other guys, and we were all around the same strength as each other, which made for a decently healthy competitive environment to see who could become the strongest the fastest and like most guys the symbol of strength was found on one machine in one machine alone the bench press now to do a proper bench press you would lay flat onto the back of it you'd plant your feet firmly and then you would unrack the bar bring it down to touch your chest, and then extend it back forward, and you would do that a number of times for your bench press. <clears throat> In the competitive nature of the group, though, one of the guys, Pat, kept urging us to put more weight on the bar for him. 
But as the weight went up, he wouldn't go all the way down with the bench anymore. At first it would be he wouldn't touch his chest. He'd just get really close, and then he'd finish by pushing the rest out. But as the semester went on, and he kept saying to put more and more weight on, he went from supposed to do this motion to he'd take the bar and do this. <laughs> he'd just bend his elbows a little bit, and he would do one, two, three, and he would do eight reps, and then he would re-rack it, and then he would come up all proud because he put up more weight than any of us. But we would all be smirking inside because we'd know he actually wasn't getting any stronger. It was fake strength. He was posing like he'd become really strong, but he was actually just as strong as he was at the beginning of the semester. See, when we get that person to do a sexual act with us, or when we know we've caught their attention at least, or when we zoom in on that picture on our phone, it's all fake strength. You didn't show your ability to endure anything as a man or a woman. You just had a moment where you felt a rush. Do you know what strength is? Strength is a faithfulness in a long direction. It's enduring hardship. It's laying your wants aside for another person. It's self-denial. The rush when you've seduced someone into a bed or a fantasy, into an intimate emotional moment, is like taking the bar off the rack, bending your elbows a little bit, and then putting it back up. You haven't endured the weight of that person's life. You haven't shown any strength. You've simply picked them up to see what they feel like and put them back down. Sexuality without God promises validation of our manhood or womanhood without requiring strength. Now our second lie, though. Sexuality without God promises fulfillment without relationship. I did that all by myself is a cute line when we hear it from children, but it's toxic line when we hear it from a full-grown adult. It's a lie that we can have the ultimate freedom we want, but we can also have ultimate intimacy when we want it to. It's the thought that we can feel known and seen and loved and cared for, but we can cut ties whenever we need to. And that's simply impossible. Fulfillment requires a relationship to someone. It requires extending yourself for the sake of another. For instance, being forgotten by a stranger is trivial to us. But being forgotten by someone we've been intimate with is devastating. But we don't want to admit our dependency on someone else for a relationship. Number three. Sexuality without God promises intimacy without requiring risk and suffering. Not only do we not want to give up our freedoms, but we also don't want to put ourselves out there either. It's easier to get a smile from that certain person or look up that website or play out that idea in our head than it is to tell your spouse, I need your help, I need your care, I need your love right now. Because the fear of hearing no from our spouse stings us way more than sinning against God does. And think about that. The fear of hearing no, not right now, from your spouse stings your heart more than sinning against God does. We've looked for shortcuts. We've cut corners. Because we'll put ourselves out there in any way that doesn't require vulnerability. 
Lie number four. Sexuality without God promises passion in life without connection to your soul. Working with college students, they'll frequently justify their uh, drinking behaviors and alcohol consumption with, but I don't swear more when I'm drunk, or I don't become uh, sexually sinful, or I'm not mean when I'm drunk, so what's the big deal if I'm just getting drunk on the weekends? It's not that bad because I'm not doing bad things with it. But like we talked about before with the apple, every group in our American society, whether it's independent or conservative or liberal, have all bought into the same misunderstanding that was in the early church. That misunderstanding is our body and our soul are different separate things. We think, I feed my soul with Smile FM, and I feed my belly with cheeseburgers. Or, my spiritual eyes will read the Bible, but my physical eyes read the newspaper. And that's not our reality. The newspaper disciples you just as much as your devotional does. We don't have a dual nature to us. In the new heavens and new earths, our bodies and souls are resurrected together. They weren't, they're meant to be intertwined. Consider Adam and Eve again. They were in the image of God with bodies in the garden. They weren't spirit until the fall, and then they had to have a body. The body, the senses, are all connected as well with the soul. I remember a professor in college teaching us how the stomach is like a second brain to us. Because think about it. When you're hungry, when your stomach's upset, or when you're full, it all affects your mood. It affects who you are as a person. So thinking you can disconnect your sexuality from your spirituality is an empty promise. Your sexual attraction and your sexual acts are all gauges for how your soul is really doing. Number five. Sexuality without God promises power without responsibility and humility. We often use sexual acts as a way to get back at a person that's upset us. It could look like looking at porn after an argument you've had. Or seeking attention from someone we know that our spouse is intimidated by. It could be fantasizing about, what if I ended up with that person instead? Or what if my spouse looked more like that person? You may not do these explicit actions, or you may not do explicit actions against your spouse, but your way of getting back at them is the secret life you have, these secret thoughts, these secret website visits. <clears throat> but it's cancerous to your relationship. Your secret power to spite your spouse is making the fabric of your marriage be eaten alive by your power struggle to get back at them. And then lastly, number six. Sexuality without God promises comfort and care without depending on others. For many of us, the reality that we need someone makes our stomach turn. You've been through so much, you've overcome so many times, you don't need any person. You don't need help with anything. You're self-made. You like the help. You appreciate when people say nice things to you. But you don't need anyone. Again, that's an empty promise. You think if you had everything your way, 
All your circumstances were good. Your work was good. Your Bible reading was good. Your marriage was good. Then you'd be completely self-sufficient. You wouldn't be dependent on anyone. You'd be in peaceful bliss. Yet, Adam had all perfection in the garden, and he still needed Eve. If you're designed to need something, it doesn't make you weak when you need it. Your car or truck is designed for gas. It doesn't mean you have a weak car or truck when it doesn't run without gas. You're not weak because you're not able to fly. So why would you be weak for needing others? It's never been good for man or woman to be alone. You're not the exception. You require comfort and care and love. And yes, that's going to depend on others. So these are the six empty promises from the book Surfing for God. And I'm confident that all of us are trapped in at least one or more of these lies. But let's consider Jesus now. Let's check verse 14 of 1 Corinthians 6. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. See, because Jesus suffered everything that we fear on this list. Every time we've tried to take a shortcut, or tried to fix it ourselves, or tried to take matters into our own hands. Think about it. We thought we could have comfort and care without depending on others. Yet he came into this world willingly depending on others and knew he would be let down in his greatest moment of need. We wanted power without responsibility and humility. Yet Jesus set aside his power, took on the responsibility of our sin, and suffered the humiliation of it. We think we can find passion in life without connection to our soul. Yet the whole message of Christmas is Jesus became a person. He became a human body, and his passion led him to giving his life to remove the stain of our sins. We want intimacy without requiring risk or suffering. And Jesus knew in order to have intimacy with us, he would have to come and take on risk and suffering for us. Fulfillment without relationship. Jesus was totally fulfilled in heaven. He wasn't up there wishing he had more people. He was with the Father and the Spirit, and they were content. And yet he set that aside to reestablish a relationship with us. We want validation without requiring strength. And it's the shoulders that held up a cross for you that are the ultimate symbol of strength that you're ever going to find. Jesus was raised from the dead. And death is so much more than just a ceasing to be alive. It's dark, it's cold, it's unknown, it's separation from love. It's the sign that we've lost the battle against time and sickness. It's weakness, it's void, it's hollow. And yet God's power raised Jesus from that. And he will also raise us from that as well. Because we're dead in these empty promises. We're destined to only become more empty, more hollow, further separated. Yet Christ will raise us from the fate that we are trapped in. We'll have comfort and care with others. Power and responsibility with humility. Passion and life for our bodies and for our souls. Intimacy and no more sorrow. 
fulfillment in our relationship with God and our relationship with each other and strength to run and not grow weary. This is our destination. Now it's time for us to begin our pilgrimage home. Verses 19 through 20 say, Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. See, the Corinthians were sneaking to a temple to go and try and ensure that they would have satisfaction and success in life. Yet for those who have placed their faith in Jesus, uh, they don't have to go to a temple. God himself came to live inside them and make them into a temple. They no longer need to bribe the forces of the universe or to give them favor or no longer reside in luck or take shortcuts or feel despair when the storms come. God, their creator, the relational God who knows the numbers of hairs on our heads, is for them. His desire is to walk with them, to listen to them, to protect them when they sleep, to strengthen them while they work. That is the love that God has for his creation, for his son and for his daughter. And that is the love that has bought you with a price. The love that unwound you from those snares and lies. You are not saved to be considered neutral with God. You are saved to have a seat at the king's table. So instead of finding the desire of the attention of someone else, instead of finding relief in that sexually explicit website, instead of escaping with a fantasy, walk with your God. He's your king, your father, and your friend. And when it comes to a practical step, uh, there are many, but I don't want to tell you there's a secret trick to fleeing sexual immorality. Accountability partners are great. Software on your phone, very helpful. Walking away from that person whose attention you desire is honoring to God and your spouse. But I'm afraid the only true formula I can offer you is found in John 15, 4 through 5. And it states, Remain in me as I remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. What does it mean to remain in Christ? I think it's best described this way. It's going and standing under what he's already done. It's not trying to hold the cross up as if we could do that. It's not trying to be independent and wander from the cross to go and do life on our own. No, it's simply standing under and trusting in it. As the old hymn, Rock of Ages, goes, Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. The thing with fleeing sexual immorality, with fleeing from your desires to act on sexuality without God, is you need to flee towards something. If you're running from a threat and you don't have a shelter to hide in, that threat will inevitably get you. So flee to hide in and under the cross and wait for your shepherd there. It's the best thing that you can do, and it's the only thing that you can do. And our God is faithful to save. So honor him with your body, 
with your sexuality and know he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. Let's pray.